is going to indeed be a great Sunday on Mother's Day. And as Craig mentioned, just a lot of great things coming in the weeks ahead. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Good morning to all of you. How are you doing this morning? Are we enjoying this great weather? Looking forward to getting out here. I'm surprised you're here. It's good to have you here. Uh, hey, one other thing as far as uh, events that are coming up, this doesn't necessarily dis, uh, concern you as much as we just welcome prayer on behalf of the Israel trip that I'm going to be leading. We take off on May 13, from May 13 to May 27. And I mentioned that to you uh, for two reasons. One, because I know that a number of you have said, hey, please let us know when you're going on these trips. The last two trips, I've failed to, to let you know that. Um, and secondly, though, we have a number of families from Central that are going to be on this trip. So we would really welcome your prayers. I'm particularly excited about this trip because my wife is coming with me. And it's the first Israel trip that I have led that my wife has gotten to go with me. Uh, we literally took God's word literal when God said, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, we have four kids. And for the last seven years, my wife has either been pregnant or nursing all seven of those years. So we're grateful that she finally gets to join me on an Israel trip. So we'd really, really welcome your prayers for that. Well, friends, we have the opportunity to continue our series that we launched uh, three weeks ago. This is part four in our Stronger series. And we have been talking about the Joshua 3 story, which has really stood as kind of the, the anchor for us in the midst of the series. And so uh, I'd like to invite you to get your Bibles out. I'll tell you where we're going to begin in just a few moments, but our fine ushers are coming down the aisle right now. So if you need a copy of scripture, put your hand up in the air and they will get you one. We'll put the page number up here in a few moments. But this Joshua 3 has been the foundation passage for us with this stronger challenge in that in Joshua 3, the Israelites are being invited by God to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. They are being summoned into new territory, into a massive challenge to do things that they have never done before. And we've said this has been a huge story for us. So we've looked at facets of the story and characters in the story from Joshua and Caleb and other aspects of it. And what we want to do this morning is look at the story that serves as the foundation to this story in Joshua 3. Because one of the realities of scripture is that story shapes story in the text. And there is a story that sits behind this story in Joshua 3 that we're going to spend some time exploring this morning. So with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to Exodus chapter 12 because the story that informs the crossing into the promised land is indeed the Exodus itself. So if you are not familiar with the Exodus story, the book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Let me just kind of give you an idea of where we are at in the trajectory of the story of Scripture. At the end of Genesis, a guy by the name of Jacob, whose son Joseph was second in command in Egypt, because of famine, was brought to the land of Egypt. Jacob came, he's one of the patriarchs, and he brought himself and the 70 members of the family, and they settled in a place called Goshen. After a period of time, they also increased and multiplied, and they became a nation, and the pharaoh of the land became concerned about the size of the people group, and as a result of dealing with his own apprehensions about the people group, he enslaves them. Now, we don't know how long the Israelites were in slavery when we come to our story today, but we do know they've been in Egypt for 430 years, and they've been enslaved for at least 80 years because they're enslaved when Moses is born. 
At the age of 40, Moses has to flee Egypt and he becomes a refugee. And eventually God comes to him 40 years after that and says, I want you to go back to Egypt. I've heard my people crying out. I want you to partner with me. We're gonna get the Israelites out of Egypt. And this is an Exodus three because it's a very interesting conversation because Moses' question then to God is, hey, if I go back to Egypt, which I'm not really fond of doing for a number of reasons, but if I do go back and the people say, who sent you? God, what's your name? Moses doesn't know God's name. And God goes, oh, here, let me, let, let me give you my name. And this is one of the things that we always have to keep reminding ourselves in the text is that there's so much we know about the story that we just assume the people in the text know this and that's not the case. And for a number of things this morning, that's not the case at all. The Israelites are gonna have to learn who is this God? Moses says, what is your name? God gives him his name. Moses goes back through a number of plagues because Pharaoh's not down with the plan to let the Israelites go. God employs these nine plagues and then finally the 10th, which is a doozy, the firstborn in every household in Egypt dies and this is what finally enables Pharaoh to say to Moses and the Israelites, okay, you can get out of here. You can be free. So this is where we pick up our story this morning. Notice with me Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. This is during the night after the firstborns have been killed. It says this, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go <laughs> and also bless me. Okay, Pharaoh, very interesting thing and bless me in this process as well. Then it says verse 37, we start getting the itinerary, if you will, of where they're moving from. Verse 37, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. Okay, so let's pause here for a moment. We get a couple of locations. Now, you'll know that whenever we come to a story in the text, we always try to ground ourselves and what's the visuals, what can we see, what's the map, where are we at? And oftentimes I show you a map that looks like this. This is because I have a map program um, within one of my Bible things and so I create these maps and it just helps us to be able to, to use different colors and for you to see different things. But I wanna use a different set of maps this morning because I really need you to see some of the stark contrasts that are in the geography of the biblical lands that unless we understand the stark differences, we're not gonna fully appreciate what's going on in the Bible this morning. So we're gonna use a different set of maps. We're gonna use an actual satellite map this morning where if you were literally looking down, these are actual satellite images of Egypt and Sinai and Canaan, which is modern day Israel. And the Israelites are located in the Goshen region. This is where Joseph settles his father Jacob and all the family in the region of, of Goshen. We kind of go in a little bit tighter here. They're leaving Ramses, according to this text, and they're going to Sukkot. This is about a 25-mile hike. And then we pick up the next leg of the journey, one chapter later, Exodus 13. Notice with me verse 20. Reads this way. It says, after Sukkot, they, the Israelites, camped at Etham, and then check out this phrase, on the edge of of the desert. Okay, that's not a random statement. It's a very helpful detail. Let me show you. From Sukkot, it's a 13-mile trek to Etham, and it says Etham is on the edge of the desert. So now that you know where Etham is, let me drop that out, and you can see here that this is right at the point where the green starts to turn into brown. 
Now, for those of you who are colorblind, I know it looks the exact same. Greens and browns are the same, but just trust us that dividing line goes from green to brown. Now, the Israelites have been spending all of their time in Goshen. They're leaving the region of Goshen. And the question becomes, what are they leaving? What are the sights? What are the visuals that they're leading, leaving behind? Now, my first time to Goshen was 10 years ago. And I remember going, man, I can't wait to see what this was like. This is where the Israelites were for hundreds of years. What was their world like? And I was absolutely blown away by how lush and rich the Goshen region was and is today. The soil is incredibly dark. Let me show you a few pictures of this. So this is the soil of one of the fields of a picture I took there about 10 years ago. There's greenery everywhere. You've got these massive, massive cabbages. I mean, the produce is like on steroids. I mean, this stuff is massive and it's huge and it's lush and it's everywhere. And you've got this immense green. You've got the water from the Nile Delta bringing water from all over the place in order to nourish the lands. You've got these palm trees. You've got the soil. You've got the greenery. It is absolutely stunning. This is what they know. This is their world. And when they move on from Etham, they move from this to this. This is the Sinai Desert. Now you go, okay, that's quite a contrast. Well, how quickly does this contrast happen? I mean, like, what's the transition period? Are we talking about like over a series of several miles? <laughs> oh no. Back to our Etham. Let's pull this out again. We're right on the edge. Let me show you. This is a picture that my father-in-law took when he went to Egypt. He got to take a balloon ride. I never got to take a balloon ride. Okay, but he got to take a balloon ride and he sent me this picture and you will see in this image just how sharp it is and how short of a distance from the green is to the brown. It happens in a matter of feet. One moment you're here, in the next you're right here. God was inviting the Israelites to leave the green and enter the brown. Or another way we could say it, to leave what they know, what was known for the unknown. When was the last time you experienced a transition from the known to the unknown? Where this is your world, this is what I know, I get it, I've been here for a long time, and all of a sudden you are ushered into something that is diametrically different than your experience. When was that last time for you? Maybe for some of you, you're in the midst of that right now. You'd go, it happened this last week. And I understand what that is. What are you feeling? What have you felt when you've been in this transition? You see, in some cases, we, we go from something known to the unknown. And at times, it can be something that's very exciting. It's something that's new. I would say that's probably not the normal emotion most people have when they go from the green to the brown. The normal feeling that we have when we go from one place to the other like this is the feeling of what? What do you, what's the feeling? Fear. Fear, right? What's it like? Like, I, I don't know this. 
This is totally new. Like, I get this, I understand that. This is totally new for me. And the general feeling is an upsurge of fear. And it's precisely because God has just invited Israel to leave the green and to go into the brown that we read this in the very next verse about what happens next. Says this, verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Now, this is a very unique way for God to guide the people. But God has just invited them into the desert, into the unknown. They don't know where they are going. And God goes, I recognize that you have this fear. There's a sense of excitement because you're no longer going to be slaves in Egypt, but you are leaving the known for the unknown. And God goes, I am going to lead you. And how does God lead them? He leads them as a pillar that during the day is a cloud and at night it is a fire. Which is one way of understanding that as God leads them by a cloud by day, it's the idea too that the cloud is probably blocking out the sun so that the people aren't just getting pounded with the heat because I have walked to this desert and it gets really, really hot during the day. But then equally you have a swing of temperatures because it gets really, really cold at night. In fact, the coldest I have ever been has been in the middle of the night in the Sinai Desert. I have never been that cold in my entire life. So the idea is that the cloud or the pillar of fire is something that allows the people to have heat to be warm during the night. God is providing for them in this way. Now, when it says here, though, that it says God went ahead of them, it literally says in the Hebrew, God walked ahead of them. And we've explored this in the Psalm 121 um, psalm that we looked at last year, I think is what it was, that the rabbis talked about the idea that a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, God walking. It's the idea that these are almost like God's legs, that God is walking with the people. He knows it's vulnerable. He knows it's unknown. He knows they have a sense of fear. And God goes, I'm literally going to walk right in front of you and show you where you need to go. Now, if you're in the unknown, this is a pretty good gig, isn't it? that this is how God would choose to show up to you. But this was also revolutionary for them on a different front. And that is because the way that the, Is- or the uh, Israelites probably would have viewed God at first would have been very similar to how the Egyptians viewed their gods and goddesses. This is something that we know from our, our studies in, in the Egyptian history, but this is also something that was true of many other nations around the world, is that they had a fundamental theology that claimed that gods were restricted to localities, meaning that a god only had certain strength and certain power within a set parameter with which that god had authority over. So when you have these plagues in Egypt, you've got something going on that's really interesting. And that is, is that when you look at the 10 major gods and goddesses of the Egyptian pantheon, their top gods, you can literally take each of the 10 plagues and each plague knocked off another god from the Egyptian pantheon. 
It was like God was demonstrating through the plagues to the Egyptians of whom he sought to woo as well. And by the way, a number of Egyptians went with the Israelites because they wanted to join this God. God wooed them by basically saying, these gods that you worship, these gods are not powerful. And so they go one after another. And then now you've been an Israelite in Egypt. God has shown up to you in a way where he has demonstrated he is strong. And the question you begin asking is, is this God's power and strength only limited to this locality? But then all of a sudden this God takes you out in the desert and this God starts walking and you go, oh my goodness, this is a traveling God. This is a God who was not only powerful in Egypt, this is also a God who apparently knows his way around the desert. You see, for us, we look in the story and we think that they have such a developed theology of who God is, and yet that's not been the case. They have been slaves for a long time, and now God is trying to reinstill trust in him, try to help the Israelites to understand, I can be trusted. I'm coming to your aid. I am walking ahead of you. I will walk you through this unknown land. And this is really comforting to these people who have just left the known for the unknown. Now, this is where the story starts to take a turn. And I mean literally. Verse one of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahirot between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal-Zavon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians you know and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So the Israelites go from Ramses to Sukkot to Etam, and then they start going through the desert. Now, we don't know exactly where they're going in the desert. What we do know is that these locations that I just read from Egyptian sources were Egyptian military outposts. They were there to guard traffic. And so the Israelites get out into the desert. They're following this cloud during the day that becomes a pillar of fire by night. And then God says, hey, Moses, tell the Israelites to turn around. So at some point, they make this U-turn, which you're already going, all right, so this God did all these things in Egypt. Now I'm following this cloud. And you're like, this is a pretty good deal. The cloud knows where it's going. Oh, my goodness, the cloud just did a U-turn. Where are we going now? And all of a sudden you're like, I'm following the cloud. I'm following the cloud. And then the cloud stops and you're like, great. There isn't a worse spot to be in this entire stinking desert. We got these Egyptian outpost cities right here. We've got the sea behind us and they find themselves hemmed in at the worst possible place. And they've got to be thinking, is the cloud lost? Like, where is this cloud going? In some way, shape, or form, we're supposed to trust that this is a representation of this God who just showed up in Egypt, and we're supposed to follow this God. This is a good deal until the cloud does a U-turn, and now all of a sudden they're like, what is going on here? Now, we get the information as to what's going on. They don't. God tells Moses why he's doing it. How is Moses supposed to convey this to several hundred thousand people? He can't. They're simply doing a U-turn going, what is the cloud lost? We've wound up in the worst place possible. And yet what God tells Moses is, this is what I'm going to be doing, Moses. 
Um, I already know that Pharaoh has sent out spies to figure out where you're going. They want to know if I'm powerful in this desert because that's their theology of their gods and goddesses. And even I just, though I just put a whooping on them in Egypt, they want to know whether or not I can survive in the desert. So I'm going to make it look like we're all lost. Pharaoh's going to start getting this impulse that says, I'm going to go after them. And God goes, I'm going to strengthen his heart. I'm going to give him a little nudge because I know that the Egyptians will continue to be on your back and I need to set you completely free from them. And the plan works. And you go like, what is Pharaoh thinking? Pharaoh just, all his gods and goddesses just got smacked down in Egypt. Why in the world would he go out in the desert? Because there was still one major God from the Egyptian pantheon that had not been tested. And let me introduce you to a guy by the name of Horus. This is one of the images of Horus holding Pharaoh's hand. Horus is the God of war. And Pharaoh says, I've got an ace in the hole and we're gonna go after the Israelites. And so the Israelites find themselves hemmed in and they're probably thinking to themselves, boy, I sure hope Pharaoh doesn't change his mind. He changed his mind a lot in Egypt, man. If he changes his mind now, we are done for it. And then all of a sudden, you look over the Western horizon and they see a dust gathering in the distance. They see the sun reflecting off metal and they recognize the most powerful army in the entire world is coming our way. And oh, by the way, they're pretty ticked off. They've all lost their firstborn. And the Israelites are gonna start to wig out. Notice verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to Moses, or excuse me, they cried out to the Lord, Then they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? So they're terrified, and yet even being terrified, there's a bit of sarcastic humor that they throw Moses' way. Because if you know anything about Egypt and the pyramids, all the pyramids are, are a giant grave to one man. All of Egypt has graves. Graves are everywhere in Egypt. They're like, hey, uh, Moses, <laughs> we're a little bit terrified here, but um, were there no graves in Egypt? It's like, them, it's like them saying to Moses, like, Moses, were there no Dutch people in West Michigan? I mean, what are you doing? And then they go on and they say this. Uh, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to die or to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Which is a very, very revealing statement that they just make here. Because apparently we could just say this, it's easier to be a slave in Egypt than to trust God in the unknown. That in this moment, they go, Moses, uh, we'd rather be back in Egypt. Yeah, we know we were enslaved. Yeah, yeah, we get all of that. We'd rather, we'd rather do that because that is known to us than to follow you in some cloud in the desert. We don't care about following this God. We'd rather go back to what is known. How often is that true for us? Right, where we feel like in some way, shape, or form, we have been invited into the unknown, but we struggle with going into the unknown because, get this, it's unknown. We want to go back 
to what we know. And even if we have the courage to take the step into the unknown, the moment that we hit any kind of roadblock, we hit any kind of tension, our first impulse is to go, yeah, maybe I want to go back. And what's scary about how much of a draw this back is, is that this can be a miserable situation to be in, and yet we'll still choose it. Why? Because at least we understand it. A rough situation that we understand is oftentimes more comfortable than journeying into the unknown. And yet in the midst of all that's going on in this story, God recognizes that the Israelites do not have much of a history with him, these particular Israelites. And God is trying to instate trust in them to help them to understand that God can be trusted. So God puts them in a really, really tough situation. And their first impulse is to say, we'd rather go back to Egypt because at least that is known. And Moses recognizes, okay, this is not going the right direction. Because God has called us into a mission. God has called us into an identity. God wants to do something through us as descendants. He made a promise all the way back to Abraham, back in Genesis 12. I'm gonna bless you so the whole world will be blessed through you. Moses knows he's gotta keep them going that way and not allow them to go back this way. So this is what Moses says in these moments of a defining moment. Says this, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Which I'd love to explore this in greater detail later. But what he says here, Moses gets the first part of this right. He says, listen, God is going to fight for you. God is going to show up. Don't wig out on me right now. And then he says, all you need to do is be still. And then God's very next words, then God said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Moses goes, all you got to do is nothing. God's like, Moses, what are you saying to them? I need them to get moving because they're near the sea. They're not at the sea. And God wants to do something amazing for them at the sea. And we all know that because we're privy to the story. But read this with me, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And God shows up in this most miraculous way. And I'm willing to bet that the Israelites' trust in God got notched up a few. Wouldn't you agree? And the story almost didn't even happen. There's one passage I conveniently didn't read with you, but it's very central to how we lead to this story at the sea. Come back with me one chapter, Exodus 13, verse 17, and notice these two verses we conveniently skipped. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. 
Here's what we were just told in this moment. If we go back to where the Israelites were, and they were in Goshen, and they leave Ramses, the first place they go is Sukkot. It is after they go to Sukkot that we get this passage that we just read. The road that God is talking about, the shorter road, is a road that literally, instead of them going to Sukkot, they would have left Ramses and gone straight into the promised land. This road would have taken them a max, a max of two weeks to get to the promised land. And yet God goes, I'm not gonna send them that direction. And why is God's rationale for this? What's God's rationale? They're not ready for it. They are not mature enough to handle the obstacles that will inevitably come their way, taking this route to get into the land of Canaan. God goes, we're not gonna go this direction. We're gonna go this direction towards the sea. You see, God recognized that the people had to grow. They had to mature. Their capacity to trust God had to be expanded because there were going to be even greater trials that were going to come in their future. And unless they had a basis of trust with God, this wasn't going to go well. And so God says, I'm not gonna take you that direction. I'm actually gonna take you towards the sea. Now, some of you will recognize from one of the earlier maps that we didn't take you all the way down to the Red Sea. Uh, and that's in part because most scholars today uh, indicate that the event of the Red Sea actually didn't take place at the Red Sea. Literally in Hebrew, it's the Sea of Reeds. Now, this doesn't change the story whatsoever. It just changes the location because those big lakes where that arrow is next to are massive bodies of water. The miracle is no less different. One of the things that's problematic about the idea of them crossing the Red Sea is that literally Hebrew says Sea of Reeds or Reed Sea and reeds don't grow in salt water. And so one of the things that gets circulated are these fun emails that say, look at the chariot wheels that they found in the Red Sea. By the way, if you ever get that, it's a total hoax. Total, total hoax. God took them to a body of water. Yes, which one? We're not entirely sure. But God said, it is through this event that I wanna help you to understand that I can be trusted, that you can take your risks with me and I will show up and guide you through them. And it's because God takes them this way that they have the ability to grow because God is always more interested in the journey than the destination because it's in the journey where we're formed. God goes, I can't take you that way because I've got some work to do in you. God invites us into the unknown because it's in the unknown where we're formed. It's in the unknown where we have to trust God anew. It's in the unknown where God shows up to us in ways we've never experienced God showing up before. And our trust is grown in the midst of the unknown. And the way the Israelites experience this is that their exodus from Egypt into the desert happened by crossing on dry ground. Now, with that whole story in mind, now let's go look at one other aspect of our Joshua 3 story that we keep coming back to over and over and over again. Joshua chapter 3. <clears throat> this is... Nearly 40 years later, 
than the Sea of Reeds incident. And we find out that later on, the Israelites were still struggling with God and what was supposed to be, by the way, only two years in the desert got extended by about 38 years. And they spent 40 years in the desert because it took God that long to work out the maturity that was necessary for the Israelites to fully trust God so that they could enter into this situation well. And in Joshua chapter three, we recognize that we've been talking about this over and over again. The Israelites find themselves at the water's edge. And this is how it goes in verse seven. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Skip down to verse 13 with me. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, the wa- and its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Let's pause here for a quick moment. So we've talked about this over and over again, right? They're at the water's edge. God goes, I want you to take the risk. I want you to jump in. It's at flood stage. This thing would have been a raging torrent. You don't tiptoe into the Jordan. You literally have to jump into the Jordan. God goes, I have spoken. You first. You first. And when you jump in and you take the initiative, because I've already spoken, I'll stop the waters. Where is this gonna happen? This is where it continues in verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon. By the way, remember last week when I said the two seven-foot women's skeletons were found at a biblical site? That's Zarathon right here in our story. So the water stopped at Adam, which is near Zarathon, and then it says this, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on, and what does the text say? Dry ground. So God says, okay, I've spoken. You're at the water's edge. Leaders, jump in first. Priest, you jump in first, and then I'll stop the waters at Adam. So here on a map here, they're on the plains of Moab. They're on the east side of the Jordan River, just getting ready to cross to the west. They're just opposite Jericho, and Adam is 17 miles away. Now, if you're the first one to jump in, does the water immediately stop? God says, I'm going to stop it at Adam. So you jump in and you're like, is this thing going to stop? Is this water going to recede? It's going to take a bit of time. And the people are wondering, did it work? And eventually it gets less and less and less until it's dry ground and the Israelites cross over through water 
on dry ground. Can you see how the Exodus story shapes this story? See, when we look at this Exodus story, the Exodus from Egypt happens with the people leaving their known going into the unknown, crossing through water on dry ground. And then this story in Joshua 3 is the exodus from the desert into the promised land. And they also cross through water on dry ground. You see, we talk about the great exodus story coming out of Egypt, but there's also another great exodus story, and that's out of the desert into the promised land. And friends, we are on the cusp of our own exodus as well that we are in a place where God is beckoning us into the unknown. Because what we recognize in this story is that when they left Egypt and went into the desert, they left what was known and God invited them into the unknown. But what happened during those 40 years is that all of those generations who came out of Egypt died off. A whole new generation was birthed in the desert. Only Moses and Joshua will enter into the land who experienced this exodus as well. And what happened is that when people were birthed in the desert years, the desert now became their known. And God was once again inviting them into the unknown. This is how God works. Every great exodus is God inviting us one more time to leave the known and move into the unknown. And the thing that God wants us to recognize is that when we stand on the water's edge, we don't blindly just jump in because there are all of these stories that have happened before us that have shaped the story that we now get to live out. That story shapes story. We as a church can move into this exodus, if you will, from where we currently are into a new unknown because we recognize how much God has shown up in the story and the history of Central. And one of the quotes that I find to be so helpful anytime, whether it's us moving into the stronger challenge or you in your own life, and this comes from Corey Ten Boone. She says this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. That we never, never just blindly move into the unknown. We move into the unknown with an awareness of all the ways that God has shown up to us in the past. That we recognize that there is a trust that has been built. That when God says, you can do this and I'm calling you into this, we can step into that with great trust. Because this is a God who's shown up over and over and over again. And it's because God has instilled this sense of trust within us that God goes, the reason why I continually wanna pull you into the unknown is because I want you to live out the greatest story possible. And what I have come to learn in my own life, and I believe is universally true, is that our greatest stories occur in the unknown. That if you were to look at all of the most significant parts of your story, and you had to think through, what are the highlights from my life? I'm willing to bet all of those highlights were first accompanied with risk. 
that you took a risk to leave the known and go into the unknown. And it was in the unknown that something happened that you've never experienced before. And you would look back and say, this has been one of the highlights of my life because I was invited to leave the known. One of the things that happened to me, 2010, I led my very first trip to Israel. I had spent three years of seminary, a year in Israel, my wife and I and our oldest, we came back and then that whole next year, one of the things I did as a part-time job was plan for my first Israel trip. And I felt a tremendous amount of weight. People were putting money down to go on a trip to spend two weeks in Israel and I was leading them. They were spending lots of money. They had high expectations. There were many nights I didn't sleep because I thought, dear God, help me not to completely mess this up. And I remember going, I wonder if anybody's even gonna sign up. Well, 12 people did. You need 20 to do a trip and I had 12 and GTI who's here locally said, we love you, we want you to get going on these trips. We'll let you go with 12. I took 12. Friends, at times 12 felt like 12 and there were times where 12 felt like 100 people. And I got done with the end of the trip and I was ecstatic because nobody died. We were coming back with everybody the trip went really, really well. I was so ecstatic. And one of the things that I was so thrilled about was the storyline because when I lead these trips, part of taking an entire year to develop the trip was developing a storyline that carries the entire trip. Like you just don't go from site to site because they're close to each other. You go from site to site because they connect into the storyline. And one of the things for me was that I'll skip a site and come back six days later, five days later, because that's when it fits the storyline. So I had this whole thing mapped up, the trajectory through the country, how we're gonna move through everything in order for these people to have this amazing experience. I get done, everything came together, I was so excited, and then I got a phone call the last night that I was in Israel. And it was from Tom Harrington, the general manager of GTI Tours, he says, Brad, how's the trip going? We've already talked a couple times. I'm like, Tom, it's great, we're gonna bring everybody home alive, it's been fantastic. And he says to me, we have a problem. And I go, what's the problem? He said, Brad, um, we've got a trip that the leader just had to step down for and we need to know if you can take it. And I was like, well, how many people were talking? He's like, 40. And I was like, come on, are you serious? And I go, well, and when does it go off? He goes, two weeks. And I go, is there anything else you'd like me to know? He says, oh yeah, the whole trip will be backwards from what you just did and it'll also include four days in Jordan. And I thought, you've, seriously? And then I said, um, is, is there anything else? Because I'm thinking, God, this is really funny, by the way. I've spent an entire year planning for this. I am trashed, I'm exhausted. I don't have anything left in my system. And in two weeks, I've got to turn around, take 40 people. And I said, have to, not get to, okay? I have to take 40 people. And, uh, and I gotta do this whole thing backwards and I gotta do, it took me an entire year to do 12 days on the ground in Israel, a land that I'd lived in. And now I have to add four days to Jordan, which I haven't spent a lot of time in. And then he goes, oh, by the way, 25 of them are students from Bethel College. I was like, great God, way to go. Way to throw my wife's alma mater college into this. <laughs> and I said, I'll call you back. Or I said, let, let me talk about it with my wife when we get home. We got home, I talked to my wife. And uh, I went and saw my mentor that same day. And I said to him, George, what do you think? 
He said, Brad, I really believe that God grew you a lot in the last year and grew you a lot in the last two weeks with this thing right here, this trip that you just led. But I believe God is gonna do more for you when you lead this trip in two weeks than what God has done in the last year. Because what you were developing was something around that you knew. Now God's inviting you into something that is unknown and God is going to do more work in you on this trip than he did for you leading up to the trip you just got done doing. And he was right. Because God wants to grow and mature us all. God recognizes that all great stories have risk, they have challenge, they have obstacles. And God goes, in these you have to rely on me and I get to expand your faith and trust in me. Friends, we stand at the water's edge. This whole series we've been talking about, we stand at the water's edge. And God is inviting us with a question, will you trust me? And the number one way that we're being asked to trust God, there's lots of ways, but the, the primary one is through our finances. And quite honestly, it'd be very easy to sit here today and go, you know what? It's a stewardship issue, which it is. And we can be reminded that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, that what we have, we do not own. We merely possess on behalf of God. And when God, who owns it all, speaks to us and says, I want you to give this towards the stronger challenge, our first impulse is going to say, God, you are stretching me into the unknown and I'm not sure I'm able to do that. It is a stewardship issue, but even deeper than that, it's an issue of trust. Where God is saying, can you trust me? Because I wanted to do great things through you. I want you to be reminded of all the ways when I brought you into the unknown and it has been hard and it has been challenging that I have worked in the midst of those situations and all I'm asking you to do is, will you trust me again? Because friends, we don't get stories like crossing the Red Sea on dry ground or crossing the river on dry ground if we're not willing to enter into the unknown. But when we are willing to do so, God can do amazing things through us all. We as the leadership feel like we've been standing in the middle of the Jordan waiting for those waters to recede from Adam. We have jumped in and we see the water coming back because in the next few weeks, the invitation is for all of us to cross through the Jordan River, to begin this new adventure into something we have never done before. And we believe God has spoken and God is beckoning us to leave what is known, what is comfortable, what is safe, what our normal budgets have been, whatever you wanna put there. And God goes, and I'm inviting you into the unknown. And friends, it's going to be quite a ride. And God goes, trust me, because we can do something great but we've got to be willing to jump in. And having journeyed with this community for the last three and a half years, this is a community that's ready for a new challenge. This is a community that says we can do this because we don't walk into this blindly. We know what our history is. We know how God has worked to us communally. And I believe that God will continue to remind each of us as individuals and families all the ways that he has shown up in the unknown to give us the strength and the courage to move into this stronger challenge with a sense of excitement and anticipation that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to continue to use us 
to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And I think we're all ready for that. Let's pray, shall we? God, we are excited. We thank you for the challenge this morning, the inspiration of not only just this morning, but throughout this entire series, God, that we've just been sinking into the text and allowing it to speak to us, to help us to understand that, God, you want to challenge us, you want to inspire us, you want to remind us that you are so interested in this community that you would actually speak and call us in a direction we've never been before because you want to use us. God, may we continue to be reminded what an honor it is that you are investing deeply and richly into us. God, we recognize that this whole Stronger Challenge is not about buildings, it is not about the money, it is about people. It is about you changing people's lives and that we simply get to be a conduit for that. God, may you continue to challenge us, inspire us to let go of the known, to walk into the unknown, and to watch you show up in unprecedented ways. We love you, we bless you, we thank you for today. And it's in Christ's name, everybody said, amen, amen. Hey, why don't you stand? Let's close with a word of blessing, shall we? And uh, friends, cannot encourage you enough to be here next week. It is going to be such an encouraging day. And as Craig mentioned, if you have any concerns whatsoever, what the heart is behind the Stronger Challenge, I think next week will be the most significant day that will affirm for you in your own soul what this whole thing is about. So we'll look forward to having you back next Sunday to celebrate. For now, I pray that you would enjoy today. I pray you would enjoy the week. I pray that you would leave this place recognizing that God loves you so much to challenge you and to recognize that as God challenges all of us, he seeks to expand our capacity to trust him so that we may experience the greatest stories possible. Friends, may you know that intimately this week. Grace and peace be with all of you. See you soon. Take care.